Stand Up with Pete Dominic. You're listening to a radio bumper for a show. Now, some music, then talking. <laughs> I love this. This is my favorite one. Sometimes stating the obvious is just the funniest thing. Well, this week marked the 10th anniversary of the Iraq War, and uh, joining us now, as uh, we have been by a number of guests from all different points of view and experiences, uh, to discuss the obviously very controversial controversial invasion. We turn to a 24-year veteran foreign service officer at the State Department who spent a year leading two State Department provincial reconstruction teams. He's the author of the book, We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. He's currently working on his new book. Uh, and uh, I think we have a title for that. Uh, WeMentWell.com is the website. He's got a piece uh, originally appeared at TomDispatch.com. Again, uh, a listener, Twitter follower, tweeted me, uh, this out to me. Unfortunately, I hadn't heard of him before, but I certainly have now done a lot of uh, research on our next guest. And uh, I, I think what he did is heroic as well because he's a whistleblower, in this case on the State Department. Peter Van Buren is now joining us. Uh, Mr. Van Buren, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here, Pete. Thank you very much for having me. Talk to me about your service. Uh, and uh, and and what happened uh, in the end with uh, with what you chose to do, uh, and uh, and and what uh, what the results were. I went to Iraq as a twenty-some year uh, veteran of the State Department. I was a, a pretty happy bureaucrat. I had had a reasonably mediocre career. I was not a disgruntled employee or, or any of those kind of things. And we'll talk about it more later. But what I saw in Iraq changed me. I saw the waste and the fraud and the mis this mismanagement of, of billions of dollars. And at the same time, I realized that this whole charade was taking the lives of both Iraqis and American soldiers. And that changed me so much that when I came back, I had to speak out. In the course of writing my book, uh, the State Department, my employer turned against me, and I found myself thrust into the role of, of whistleblower. Where just trying to tell the truth to the American people cost me my career, almost put me in jail, and absolutely derailed my hopes of continuing to work for the government. It was quite a quite a ride. And you know, um, you, you've talked a lot about that, and and uh, I would love to hear you know more exactly of, about what happened uh, now. But you know, I also want to talk about uh, your book um, and uh, and why you wrote that. I mean, that's a lot of why you you got this criticism, right? We meant well. How I helped lose the battle for hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. Let me ask the obvious question: How did you help lose the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people, Peter Van Buren? I was actually sent to Iraq to, to win the war. Um, as we all know, in 2003, the invasion was supposed to be uh, concluded with the Iraqis meeting us in the streets, giving us uh, bottles of wine and their frisky daughters, you know, the same scenes we saw at the end of World War II. That was the script, but unfortunately it went off script two or three months after the invasion supposedly concluded the mission accomplished moment uh, that the neocons were yeah. dreaming of we realized that Iraq was going off the rails. There was an insurgency that was brewing up, and that this insurgency was fueled in large part by the fact that we had destroyed civil society in the country. We had disbanded the Ba'ath Party, which meant that school teachers didn't go to school and teach, police officers didn't go to uh, their jobs, nobody picked up the garbage, nobody kept the water and the sewer systems running, and we had actually destroyed civil society. It was at that point in time that a whole series of actors tried and failed 
on this process of, of reconstruction. We all know about the big contracting companies, the Army Corps of Engineers, etc. Got down to about 2007 or so, and in the wake of the, the surge, it was the U.S. Department of State, my employer, who was tasked with the role of going to Iraq and completing this reconstruction process. We were going to spend literally tons of money and give the Iraqis an economic system that they could live with, uh, alternatives to suicide bombing, and at the same time, for no extra charge, institute democracy, uh, empower women, uh, modernize agriculture, pretty much everything uh, short of uh, handing out uh, free cotton candy to the kids. My when job was... Yes, yeah. please. No, you go ahead. What was your job? My job was to run two of these uh, so-called provincial reconstruction teams, PRTs. And these were the vehicles that all this goodness was supposed to flow out of. We were I was given uh, more money than I could possibly ever count, and a couple of uh, civilian contractors who were supposedly experts in some of these fields, women's empowerment, agriculture, uh, what have you. And we were going to go out and create job opportunities um, and fix everything. That was how we were supposed to win the war. How I lost the war is actually the story in my book, because we didn't do very well at any of those things. Well, I, I can't wait to get the book and read the specifics. But, you know, when um, stay with me if you can, Peter, on this analogy. Okay. Uh, my wife and I, when we first met, we were doing long distance. She was in Chicago. I was in New York. We met in Europe. Long story. But. I really wanted her to move in with me. And when she would come visit, I'd always hire a cleaning lady, clean up my apartment so that she would think I was real clean. And she she then moved in with me. And after about a week and a half, she's like, you're a mess. You're a wreck. I had no idea how much, whenever I would come here, I'd always be mad. And I, I was like, tricked ya. You know, I put up a good front when she would come to visit me so she would think something that wasn't true. It seems in reading your piece, it's kind of what we did when um, different diplomats and government uh, officials and politicians would come and visit uh, your reconstruction projects. Is that is that uh, is that similar there that you were uh, dressing things up? Well, I'm I'm glad your wife made the right decision in the end. I'm afraid our story in Iraq was was less successful, um, but we were far better at pulling the wool over people's eyes. One of the stories I, I recount in my book is what we came to call the Potemkin Chicken Factory. We had been uh, given $2.2 million to build a chicken processing plant, literally in, in the middle of nowhere. We had never really considered where the raw materials were going to come from, you know, the chickens that we were going to slaughter. And more importantly, we never really figured out where all this processed chicken was going to go once it was processed. Once we had wrapped it up and put it into styrofoam and, and, and uh, saran wrap, the kind of way it looks like at the Safeway, um, where was it going to go? Because Iraq lacked stores, it lacked roads, it lacked a logistics system. We'd never really thought about the left or the right. But our wife was coming to, uh, to visit, and this time in the guise of the media. And so we tasked the soldiers with us to go out into the markets and buy up every chicken they could find. Um, and we decimated the chicken population uh, of, of central Iraq that afternoon, drove the price up crazily. By the end of the afternoon, the, the Iraqis were offering us cats, telling us they were chickens because we still needed No way. Well, you know, they say it's an Iraqi chicken. It looks a little different. Anyway, the good news is, is we stocked the chicken plant with, with chickens. The media people came. They loved it. Feathers were flying. Processing was occurring. It was so successful that we had to do it again and again and again and again. 
and we evolved kind of a chicken standard of, of fakery, if you will, where if it was somebody uh, important from the media, you know, a celebrity or something, they might see 60 or 70 chickens get slaughtered. If it was kind of a less important journalist, 20 or 30, somebody from radio, they might see two or three chickens get killed. The point was none of it was real. Everything was made up. It was all pretend. There were no chickens processed there when the cameras were turned off, and none of the processed chicken actually went anywhere other than the garbage tip behind the, uh, behind the chicken processing plant. That said, it was declared a great success. General Odierno uh, labeled it a success and toured it. The deputy chief of mission in uh, the U.S. Embassy came out there and claimed it was the best day he'd ever had in Iraq was visiting the chicken plant. And there's plenty of stories still online today that were the propaganda that we generated. It became obvious to me, as opposed to your good intentions with uh, trying to woo your wife, what we were doing was trying to fool everyone. We were trying to make up a story that fit our preconceived narrative, that things were working in Iraq, and we simply spent a lot of money to fool as many people as we could. And apparently we're fairly successful at it, at least for the people outside of Iraq. Because you read stories today in the newspapers. Uh, this has been a rough week for me to read all these, these tales about how well we actually did pretty well in Iraq, uh, written by people who supported the war from 2003, when in fact the whole thing was simply a sham. We didn't do this reconstruction work for the benefit of the Iraqis. We did it for ourselves. It was largely a Potemkin village where we stood up set props and painted signs and took good pictures so that it looked like we were succeeding. It was unfortunately an illusion. And as soon well, as the last you... American troops left, it all fell apart. Well, I mean, you have to wonder. It's not a conspiracy. It's just how the system works. You just have to wonder, Peter Van Buren, how much of this had to do with, you know, everything, the, the, just the corruption of government and the relationship between uh, policymakers who appropriate money and, and, and contracts and contractors who lobby for those contracts. It's like that, that, that the build, the construction of that chicken factory, the construction of the sewage. I mean, uh, Rachel Maddow writes a lot about this in her book, Drift, and it's a great mm -hmm. book as, as much as I disparage her for not coming on to talk about this with us. It's a great book and people should read it. <laughs> um, you know, this how much of it just is about influence from contractors to get those contracts and they get paid regardless if it ever processes a chicken or sewage or anything else? Rachel doesn't return my calls either, so don't feel bad, Pete. Yeah, the thing she's is, weird. Is that one of the many, many, many bad outcomes of contracting out our wars? And as you correctly point out, and, and even Rachel does too, huge swaths of the money that were spent on the Iraq War and the Afghan War and the other wars um, are going to private firms, private contractors. And unlike even government bureaucrats, and particularly unlike the military, these contractors have no vested interest in the war actually ending or victory actually being achieved. When you're in the military, you, you have a goal. We're going to take that hill. We're going to capture that town. We're going to cross that border, what have you. And there's something called an end state, which you work toward. Even inside the halls of a creaky bureaucracy like the State Department, we have a goal, and, and we try to get there. With contractors, succeeding, actually achieving victory means that the money gets shut off. And so one of the many unanticipated consequences of us contracting out our wars is that the wars never really end. 
The contractor's goal is to keep the war alive as long as possible because that keeps the money flowing. Should they actually achieve an end state, actually achieve victory, well, that's the end of the gravy train, and so there's no interest on their part. And I think that contributes in large portion to events like the Iraq War, which dragged on for over 10 years, or the war in Afghanistan, which is now in its 12th year with no real sign of ending. There's no real reason to end it as long as the money is still flowing. And I'm afraid our choice of method of making war, contracting it out to mercenaries like KBR and Blackwater, um, means we're going to be doing it for a long, long time. Why did you write a book uh, about life on the job while still on the job at the State Department? Why did you take that risk? As I said at the top of the interview, what I saw in Iraq changed me. I had spent enough time inside the bureaucracy to know that waste and mismanagement were sort of hand-in-hand hand with how the government sadly, sadly worked, and I made my peace with that. The difference was that in Iraq, this waste and mismanagement was actually costing people their lives. Iraqis were dying around us from lack of water and, and, and poor sanitation. American soldiers were being killed by IEDs and, and suicide bombers just so that we could drive out and look at things like our chicken processing plant. This changed me and, and made me realize that the scale of this needed to be told to people, and particularly when I realized that the majority of American people did not know that we were quietly spending $60 billion of their tax money in Iraq on these things. Like many whistleblowers, I didn't make a conscious choice to tell the truth or blow the whistle. I was compelled to do it. I realized that what I saw and what I knew had to reach a larger audience, and so I did it. Without a lot of thought about where it was going to lead me and the consequences of it, I did it. And I wrote this book so that the American people would understand what was being done in their name, where their tax money was being spent, because it certainly wasn't being spent rebuilding things here in America. And the consequences to me were, were, were significant. My uh, employer at the time, the Department of State, uh, did not like having its mistakes put in print. They did not like being embarrassed by the truth. And they immediately began uh, an attempt to find something to prosecute me for. They claimed falsely that there was classified material in the book, and then they claimed that I had uh, violated some rules about publishing without permission. All of these things were, were garbage. They were just trumped-up charges that they were trying to throw something against the wall and hope something would stick. Um, when they realized they couldn't prosecute me, they then turned internally to begin the process of, of firing me, and in particular putting in, in jeopardy the pension and benefits that I had earned over the course of my career of service to the United States. It got so crazy that the American Civil Liberties Union stepped in and helped defend me, along with some very brave people at a thing called the Government Accountability Project. Right. And these two organizations defended me successfully against the State Department and allowed me to retire with the benefits that I earned, and more importantly, to allow me to continue to speak out on, on programs like this and other opportunities. Well, I look forward to getting your book, WeMeantWell.com, at WeMeantWell. <clears throat> Peter, thank you for your service. We really appreciate you joining us and uh, and your candidness and your honesty uh, that you, uh, you know, it, it must have been a hard decision to do what you did. Uh, most people don't have that type of integrity. You're an exception, unfortunately, but uh, thank you, man. I look forward to reading your book. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we should probably thank the listener as well who uh, who gave me a heads up on Peter Van Buren and his work. 
uh, and his original article that that uh, that I read uh, that was originally published at Tom Dispatch. All right, well, there you go, everybody. That's a wrap. That's the week. Thank you very much for uh, for tuning in this week. Uh, more and more people checking out the program and sticking with the program. Uh, big thanks especially to uh, the producers of the program, Melanie Starling and Chris Hosselt. They have just been fantastic uh, all week. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Alfred Schultz. I kid, I kid. Alfred uh, has been working 12-hour days for like seven weeks, um, sometimes more. And uh, I decided to give him a day off, and I don't think he's even going to take it. On Monday, we'll be playing some of the best of uh, our first, what, five weeks here? Or has it been more? Uh, We started February 11th, so whatever that is. Um, A lot of really good stuff that we'll be bringing you back. Uh, Diane Ravitch and Lawrence Wilkerson again, and uh, a lot more. And uh, so thank you, uh, uh, Alfred, for your dedication. And for uh, your hard work, your loyalty, and your attitude uh, these past six weeks. You make it easy, pal. No, your attitude's been good. I, I said you make it easy. Oh, you were complimenting me. Yeah. All right, well, good work, it's a love fest. <laughs> uh, but uh, everybody, uh, uh, Alfred Schultz and, uh, and Melanie, who's been fantastic, and Chris uh, Hostelt, who's been an amazing and, and great surprise addition to the program, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And not to mention our interns are, are awesome, Merrick Nelson and Jackie Kelleher. Uh, we, we couldn't have done any of this without uh, everybody, and I get all the credit, and I shouldn't. And so... Uh, you know, this week we started the week in D.C. with IAVA, and uh, we, we, you know, I'm glad that Alfred at least got to go out to a nice dinner. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'll have to bring Melanie or, or Chris on the next trip. In all seriousness, I feel like we learned a lot this week. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Like some weeks you'll yeah. learn, actually learn a lot. And hanging out with those veterans, uh, my vocabulary was enriched by their issues, and uh, it was very, very informative. Well, uh, me too, yeah. I mean, we, we, we learn a lot just having that experience hanging out with them. Uh, but we learn a lot every day and every hour from all of our guests. Uh, that's what this program is. It's It really is like a, a college classroom. And I'm not the teacher. I'm a guy asking questions. I'll give you my take and I'll give you what I think. And I'm, I'm wrong a lot of the time, we find out uh, later on. But I, I, I hope that you, you'll uh, help promote the discussion. More and more smart people will join us. Because like I said a couple times, two of our guests today were suggested by listeners. We, we take into consideration everything that you sent to us. Uh, on uh, on Twitter at Pete Dominic, stand up at PeteDominic.com is my email, and check out the website. We're doing more and more there. Check out who is on the show and, and more. We're out of time. Think for yourself and be the change you want to see in the world. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Oh,